All right. Well, it's so good to be with you today. I, uh, I love talking about God's Word and, and, and encouraging people that God's Word really is true from the beginning. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Your origins really do matter. What you believe about creation versus evolution, it's important. And it's something that we need to, uh, we need to be familiar with. We need to understand. And to start out, I want you to consider the United States of America. We have the most churches, the most Christian colleges, Christian bookstores, Christian radio and television of any nation. And for all of these Christian resources, would you say we're becoming more Christian every day or less Christian every day? Less, yeah. It seems like wherever I go, people say that. How is it that this nation founded primarily by Christians on Christian principles with all these Christian resources, how is it that we're becoming a pagan nation? What is going on? And is there any connection to origins? And I want to suggest there is a connection to origins. You see, ultimately, these, these problems that we're having in our society, all of them can be traced back to a broken law of God. All of them can be traced back to, to where somebody has said, no, we're not going to listen to what the Bible says. We're going to do it this other way. Every one of them, really, directly or indirectly, goes back to that. You see, it's when people have decided that they're going to trust in man's, man's word rather than God's word. And you see, that's really what creation and evolution is all about as well. It's God's word versus man's word. And if you think about it, where does, where does the doubt begin? Where, why is it that people would say, no, the Bible, I don't think we can trust that. The most attacked, ridiculed aspect of the Bible is creation. That's the one where people will say, well, you know, the Bible might have some stuff that's true in it, but we know you can't believe that God created. I mean, we know from science that the universe exploded into existence in a Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago and life evolved on Earth over, over the course of billions of years, right? We've heard that. And so that's the place where people say, well, you can't trust the opening chapters of the Bible. And so really, it's the same issue, isn't it? It's God's word, teaches creation, man's word, millions of years of evolution. And I want to suggest to you that the loss of biblical authority, beginning in Genesis, is the root of the decline of Christian America. People don't have confidence in the Bible as the authoritative word of God because the Bible has been attacked, particularly in the area of origins. That's the place where people begin to question God's word. Of course, it doesn't end there, but it does begin there. And that's what evolution is. Evolution is one of the, uh, it's, it's the main alternative to biblical creation. It's the one that secu the secularists believe. They believe that life uh, formed from random chemicals, not caused by a mind, but it just came together and over over. Millions and millions of years, something like a bacteria evolved into all, all the different forms of life that we see today. And that's what I mean when I use the term evolution. We, we need to be consistent in our terminology. And that is what evolutionists believe. I had the um, opportunity to speak to a group of atheists one time by divine providence. And I mentioned, you know, I mentioned, you know, I said, in your worldview, you're related to broccoli, and uh, which, you know, it's true in their worldview. And, and afterwards, one of them was kind of upset about that. He said, you know, weren't you kind of poking fun at us for, you know, saying we believe, you know, you're related to broccoli? And I said, well, isn't that what you believe? He said, well, yeah. I said, well, there you go then. I said, you know, if it sounds a little bit silly to you, don't shoot the messenger, right? I mean, you might want to reconsider your belief. Don't, don't, uh, don't get mad at me for pointing it out, as long as I've done it accurately. What you believe about origins has consequences. If creation is true, certain standards stem from that. If creation is true, you'd expect to have laws. Because there's a lawgiver. God made us. He made us in his image. He has the right to set the rules. And so we have absolute moral standards from our creator. And I have a very good reason to obey God's laws because God will hold me accountable for my actions. There is a judgment day. 
And so, of course, you'd have laws. And, of course, we ought to obey them. I get that. Marriage. Where does this idea of marriage, one man and one woman for life, where does that come from? Well, it goes back to Genesis, right? That's where God instituted marriage, right? God made the man and the woman. He united them, and he explicitly says it's for that reason that the man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and the two are one, and so on. Uh, We understand that. It's a Genesis concept. God created marriage. He gets to define what it is. Standards, standards of behavior, standards of clothing. I noticed you're all wearing clothes today. I appreciate that. I'm sure you do too. Where does that come from? Because originally it wasn't that way, right? But because of sin, uh, God provided a sort of symbolic covering for our shame. We understand it goes back to Genesis. Or why is it meaning of life? Why is it that life, human life is so precious, so valuable? Well, the answer is it's because we're made in the image of God. Right? And that's why humans, we're, we're separate in a, in a way from the animals. And I know biologists classify us as a mammal. I understand that. But and we're, we're, biblically, we're different from the animals because we're made in the image of God and animals are not. And so that's why it would be wrong for me to go out and just shoot somebody that I don't like because that person is made in God's image, you see, and therefore precious to God. If evolution were true, you'd have a counterfeit set of standards, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Because if evolution's true, why would you have laws? I mean, evolution is all about the strong dominating over the weak, and yet laws are designed to protect the weak from the strong. They are anti-evolutionary by their very nature. You say, well, well, you have to have laws, Dr. Lyle, otherwise people would go around acting like animals. And I, but in the evolutionary worldview, isn't that what we are? Right? It doesn't make any sense. Or, um, you know, why not do what you want with sex for that matter? Right? I mean, if, if, if marriage is not the, the sacred thing that God created then why not? And if we're just evolved animals, why not do what's instinctive for that matter? Abortion, get rid of spare cats, get rid of spare kids, right? If we're just evolved animals. Jesus understood this. Jesus understood that Christian doctrines go back to creation and can't really be defended apart from creation. In Matthew 19, when the religious leaders that were at the time of Jesus' earthly ministry and they questioned him about divorce, to explain marriage, Jesus went back and quoted Genesis 1 and 2. And he quoted it as real history, like he believed it. How about that? And that he, he understood that that was the basis for marriage. But then again, if, if you have this foundation, you can't defend marriage because it doesn't, it doesn't go together. They don't comport. They don't go well together. Now, I'm not suggesting that evolution is the cause of all these evils that we see in society. Sin is the cause of those evils that we see in society. I am suggesting that evolution gives people a way of trying to justify that sin in their minds because these doctrines do not make sense on that foundation. It it doesn't work. Christian doctrines are based on Genesis. And what's happened in our culture is that foundation has been eroded. We now live in a culture where most people don't believe that Genesis is literal history. Let's face it. And as a result of that, well, you can't defend these Christian doctrines that are based on the literal history of Genesis. Yeah, why would you have, you know, absolute moral laws? Isn't the culture changing and just laws can change and so on? And why should marriage be one man and one woman for life? After all, nobody believes in Adam and Eve anymore, right? That's the kind of thinking that that goes on there. See, a lot of Christians think, well, I don't have time to worry about origins, Dr. Lyle, because we got, you know, marriage is under attack in our culture, being redefined and so on, and we got bad laws in the books, and, and, you know, life is no longer considered sacred. We got abortion and so on. There's a connection, right? Because these Christian doctrines that have been eroded in our society are based on a concept that most people now reject. It makes sense. We need to recognize 
that our foundations are under attack. And if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? See, a lot of Christians get intimidated by the secularists who say, well, you know, we know scientifically millions of years of evolution is the way life came about. They get intimidated and they think, well, maybe God used evolution somehow. And, and of course, then you have to reinterpret Genesis, right? Because Genesis doesn't indicate evolution. They say, well, Genesis maybe is just poetic or it's like a parable or something. But Genesis isn't written in that style. Genesis is written in the style of literal history. You know those verses that you love to read before you go to bed? And so-and-so begets so-and-so, and they begets so-and-so. <laughs> like those genealogies that you find like in Genesis 5. Well, those verses are there for a reason. They're there to tell us that these are real people, and they lived, and it tells us the names of at least one of their children, and sometimes how long they lived, and so on. Now, parables are not written that way, right? I mean, Jesus used parables sometimes in his earthly ministry. I understand that. But in parables, you don't have a, a list of specific names. Usually a parable doesn't have names. It's just there was a certain man or there was a king or, and, and so on. We understand that. You certainly wouldn't have a list of genealogies in a parable. That would be pointless. That would make no sense at all. And some people have said, but no, Genesis is poetic literature. and it, You don't have to read it literally. Now, I'll grant the Bible has poetic literature, and it's not meant to be read in a wooden literal sense. When, you know, in this, when we read in the Psalms, for example, or in Proverbs, when it says that God is a rock, it doesn't mean he's like igneous or basalt, right? We understand that. We understand it's a metaphor. I get that. Not everything in the Bible is 100% literal. I get that. But Genesis is not written in the poetic form, right? In fact, Hebrew poetry is very easy to recognize. It's quite different from English poetry where we tend to focus more on rhyme and meter. In Hebrew poetry, it's based on parallelism where you have a, a, a thought expressed and you have the same, the same thought expressed in different words. Like, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Kind of says the same thing, doesn't it? That's Hebrew poetry. It's quite beautiful. You don't find that in Genesis. You will not find evidence of Hebrew poetry. In fact, if you think about it, that would make a terrible poem, wouldn't it? <laughs> no, Genesis is written as real history. And how do you interpret a history book? You pick up a history book that says George Washington rode his horse into battle. You pick, up, you pick out the symbolic meaning of everything. What does it mean, George Washington? What does, white, what does horse represent, right? It means what it says. It's history. And by the way, those genealogies, they lead up to Jesus Christ. Hmm. So here's my question then for Christians who compromise and say, well, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. Praise God. I'm glad you do. But then they say, but I, I think Adam's just a, a metaphor. But Jesus is descended from Adam. You're saying Jesus is descended from a metaphor? That doesn't make any sense, right? A real person can't be descended from a metaphorical one. <laughs> I mean, genetically, how would that work? That doesn't make any sense. It is theologically important that Jesus Christ is descended from a literal Adam, and so are we all. The Bible says we're all of one blood. We're all, descended from, we're all descended from Adam, Adam and Eve. That's theologically important. Why? Because it means Christ is our blood relative. We're related to him. You say, well, why is that important? Because according to biblical law, only a relative can redeem you. There's an important concept in biblical law, the kinsman redeemer. Only, only a relative can save you from your sins. And so if, here's my point. If Adam's just a metaphor, and that's not real history, you might not be related to Jesus Christ, in which case you are not eligible for salvation. That's a problem. It's because we are related to Jesus. We know that because we're all descended from Adam, that we know his blood can count for ours on the cross. That's why that works that way. See, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins, the Bible says. Now, they were used symbolically in the Old Testament to point forward to Messiah to come, but they can't actually pay for sins, the Bible says in Hebrews 10.4. And there's a reason for that. It's because we're not related to bulls and goats, you see. 
Unless, of course, evolution is true. In which case, that doctrine has gone. You see how the gospel message goes back to a literal Genesis? Where do we learn that death is the penalty for sin? It's in Genesis we learn that. That's where that comes from. That's where we learn that we need a Savior. Putting it another way, which Adam is non-essential to the gospel? Is it the first Adam that made it necessary for us to be saved? Or is it Jesus Christ, the last Adam, who made it possible for us to be saved? You see, without the first Adam, there's no need for a last Adam, right? What are we being saved from? And perhaps you've had conversations with, with uh, unbelievers and you know you trust in Jesus. And they say, well, I don't understand why I need to trust in Jesus. I'm basically a good person. I don't think God would keep me out of heaven. Now, there, there you're talking to somebody who doesn't understand or doesn't believe in Genesis. Because if you think about it, in Genesis, how many sins did it take to ruin the world? It's one. Adam ruined it. He blew it. Because you see, that's what sin does. It ruins the world. And so... God's going to make a new heavens and a new earth, and they're going to remain perfect forever, and that means not one sin can come into it, and that's a problem for us because we've all sinned. Now, See, now it makes sense. Now I get it. Now I see why I need a Savior. The Bible really is the history book of the universe. It, it starts in the beginning God created, and it tells us the important events that have happened historically in terms of our relationship with God. And, you know, I found that most people like the morality the Bible teaches, but they want to reject the history. Isn't that true? Even atheists like a lot of the morality the Bible teaches. Thou shalt not steal. They like that. Thou shalt not murder. Oh, the Bible got that one right too, right? That's the way they think. They don't want to be murdered. But you see, my point is you can't separate the morality from the history. The morality comes out of the history. Why is it wrong to murder? Because we're made in the image of God. You see, it goes back to, it goes back to Genesis. It goes back to the beginning. Jesus put it like this. He was speaking to Nicodemus. He said, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? That's a pretty good question, isn't it? You see, the Bible deals with both. It deals with earthly things, matters of history, the days of creation, Noah's flood, events that happened in earth history. And it deals with heavenly things, spiritual matters, morality, salvation. If you say, yes, but I don't think I believe in a Literal Genesis. I'm not sure that that's meant to be taken that way. Hey, if God didn't get the details right in Genesis, how can you trust that he got the details right on how to inherit eternal life? Does God know how to write a book or doesn't he? I think he knows how to write a book. I think if he can make a universe, he can probably write a book. (laughs) I've written books. It's not that hard. You got God's infallible word, man's fallible word. Why is it that people want to change the infallible one to agree with the fallible one. Isn't that interesting? Right? Oh, it doesn't really mean God created. He, it means he used evolution somehow. They don't do that with Darwin's book. They don't pick up origin of species and say, well, that's just a metaphor for creation. He really meant that God created. And, right? They don't do that. Is this how Jesus responded when people did that? The Pharisees and Sadducees were masters at reconstructing God's word and interpreting it contrary to the intention of God. And how did Jesus respond to that when they come up with these twisted interpretations? Did he say, did he respond with modern political correctness? <laughs> That's not my personal opinion, but that could be true for you. It might not be true for me. And, or, uh, you know, it's not a salvation issue, so let's, uh, let's agree to disagree on that, right? And let's just all hold hands and sing kumbaya. Well, that's, that's not how he responded, is it? He responded with, it is written. Have you not read? And do you realize that when Jesus is saying, have you not read, 
to the scribes and the Pharisees? He's, he's using sarcasm. Of course they had read it. They hadn't applied what they had read. They weren't using their brain. And Jesus was pointing that out using mild sarcasm. It's that we don't tend to think of Jesus that way, but it's true. I mean, it's kind of interesting. And he never sins, so we know that sarcasm is not always wrong. Isn't that interesting? Of course, it can be used wrong. We need to be clear on that. But I think that's very interesting. It's interesting to me, too, because Jesus is God. He would not have had to have responded that way. He could have said, because I'm God and I said so. And that would have been fine. But instead, he stood on the written word as his ultimate authority, as his ultimate standard. And I think that's an example for us. We can't say, I'm God and I said so. But we can say, God has said in his word. And that settles the matter. You can think of the culture war that's going on today a bit like these two cities. You've got the city of God and you've got the city of man. City of God, Christianity, based on the Bible, creation. And then you've got the city of man, based on evolution, based on man independent from God determines truth. And how are we fighting this culture war? Perhaps not as effectively as we could be. We're arguing over issues that maybe aren't so important. We're blasting some billboards, and that's okay. It's it's fine to point out that pornography is wrong and abortion is wrong and racism is wrong. We, we should do some of that. I understand that. But my point is, if that's all we're doing, we're not really fighting very effectively because we're not dealing with the root of the problem. Meanwhile, the secular humanists are smart. They're aiming at our foundation, saying you can't trust the Bible because we know millions of years of evolution is true. Boom. Right? That's what they claim. Science has demonstrated evolution. It really hasn't, but that's what they claim. And uh, sadly, the... Uh, a lot of Christians help them by saying, yeah, it doesn't matter what you believe about Genesis, zap. Just, you know, believe in God and you're good. Well, there are better ways to fight this culture war. How, what, how, what's the solution then? It's fine to point out that uh, these are issues. We need to deal with those. Don't get me wrong. We should zap those from time to time. But we need to do more than that. We need to defend ourselves against these evolutionary arguments that are not logical. They're not cogent arguments. They're not based on good science or anything like that. Evolution itself, we need to do some damage and point out that it is not good science. It's not logical. It's a, it's a scientifically bankrupt conjecture. It's not something that even should be called, a, it shouldn't be called a theory even because it doesn't have any real supporting evidence. Creation, on the other hand, is true and it's confirmed by science when we understand the evidence. And I like how this is illustrated too because you notice we're not aiming at people. We're aiming at that city which represents... A, uh, an idea. It's, it's, a, it's a, uh, a stronghold that, that, has, that is opposed to what God has said in his word. We need to cast down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. But we're praying the people will jump off and swim over and join us on the uh, city of Christianity. We want people to be saved. That's why we do what we do. There, that's, it's not an academic game. It isn't. I'm not interested in academic disputes, I really, in terms of debating and things like that. It doesn't interest me. I want people to be saved. And that's why we do what we do at the Institute for Creation Research. There are some organizations that just try to show people that God exists. And sometimes they'll say, well, you can leave the Bible out of the discussion. Just talk science and we'll show you that God exists. Maybe as a matter of strategy. They prefer it that way. But here's, here's the problem. The demons believe in God. It doesn't save them, Right? A theist will end up in hell the same as an atheist if they haven't trusted in Christ as their Savior. And so we want people to trust in God's Word from the very beginning, and we don't get that kind of trust by saying, well, yeah, we can leave the Bible out of the conversation. No, we're not going to leave the Bible out of the conversation. Somebody says, but I don't believe the Bible. I say, well, you should. I mean, if you don't believe it, that's your problem. I'm not going to make it my problem. I'm not going to reject recorded history just because you don't personally like it. 
Well, we do want people to be saved, and that's why we do what we do. What about the time scale of creation? There seems to be some controversy on this. There really shouldn't be, but it seems like there is. The Bible tells us that God created in six days. It tells us what he did on each of those days of creation. Human beings are made on six, the sixth day along with the uh, land animals. And, uh, of course, that was a few thousand years ago because you can add up those genealogies, right? And so-and-so begets so-and-so, and you find out that Adam was made something like 6,000 years ago. Maybe you can't get an exact date, but something like that. It certainly wouldn't be millions or billions of years. But if you went through the public school system, you're taught, no, that's nonsense. We now know the world's billions of years old, and fossils have been deposited over hundreds of millions of years. And you'll find that in all the textbooks, right? See, there it is, millions of years. Got to be true. It's in the textbooks, right? Because textbooks are never wrong. Yeah. <laughs> that's my little use of sarcasm. Well, we get intimidated. We get intimidated very easily, and we think, well, you know, the s- smart people believe in millions of years. Got to get that in there somehow. Got to fit that into the biblical time scale. We have to admit that if you just read the Bible by itself, you'd never conclude millions of years, right? I mean, you read the Bible by itself, you get a few thousand years. But people get intimidated, and they think they need to shove the millions of years into the into the biblical time scale. Now, where are you going to do it? You can't do it in between Adam and Christ because that would destroy those genealogies, right? You can't say in so and so begets so and so, and then a million years later they beget so and so. That's not going to work. But but you know. In, in, the only other place you can think to do it is in creation, the creation week. That's the only place they can think to put the millions of years. And so how are you going to do that? Well, there's a few different ways they try and do that. They'll say, well, maybe the millions of years happens before the beginning. And that's pretty easy to refute because if it happened before the beginning, then the beginning wouldn't be the beginning. Right? Yeah. That's, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, there's a gap in between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2 for which there is no evidence in Scripture and uh, which actually can be refuted on the basis of the Hebrew language. Hebrew, the Hebrew language uses what's called evolved disjunctive in verse uh, 2, and it indicates that that's a comment on verse 1. You can't put time in between verse 1 and verse 2. So that's been th- pretty thoroughly refuted. One of the most common, though, is the idea that maybe the days weren't really days at all, but vast ages, hundreds of millions of years each. And so God really meant to say that he made in six ages. Well, if that's what he meant, why didn't he say that? That's what I want to know. Because the Bible, because Bible says six days. And people say, oh, but, well, there's no Hebrew word for a long period of time, which is not true. There are several, like olam, which indicates a long period of time. God could have used that word if he'd wanted to indicate vast ages. It's kind of a strange concept that people who say, well, no, he, he used the word day because he, he forgot to make it. You know, it's kind of like they're saying he forgot to make a word for long age, so he just used day and hoped we'd figure it out. Uh, no, that doesn't make sense. Now, Again, we have to admit, there's no scriptural support for the idea that the days were long ages. But some people will try and pull scriptures out to support that. For example, I've heard people say, but Dr. Lau, the Bible says in 2 Peter 3.8 that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, right? So those might have been very long periods of time. Of course, you read it in context. It's not referring to the days of creation at all. It's referring to God delaying judgment from a human perspective so that many people can be saved. It's not referring to, to the days of creation. And I think it's interesting, too, they only quote the first part of the verse. What does the rest of the verse say? One day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. It cancels that right out, you see. I find people only pull the first part of the verse out of context, yeah, to make time longer, but they never pull the second part out to make time shorter, right? You never hear people say, yeah, you know, the Bible indicates 2,000 years between Abraham and Christ, but a thousand years is as a day. It was really only 48 hours between Abraham and Christ. Nobody does that. It would be silly. 
And it's not saying a day is a thousand years. It's saying it's like that or as that to God. It's using a simile, comparing two things, right? Using like or as, we understand that. And it, how can that be? How can it one day be with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day? Because God is beyond time. He made time, after all. He's beyond it. Now, he can step into time and do what he wants. That's not a problem. He's done so. But God doesn't need a clock. We need clocks, and God knows that. God's beyond time. And so whenever God uses time language, it is always for our benefit and therefore to be understood on human terms. God does know how to communicate with the creatures that he created in his own image. And the reason this is so powerful is because a day is so different from a thousand years. You realize if a, if a, if a day really meant a thousand years, you could substitute that in, right? And it would say that you know a thousand years is what the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a thousand years. And that would be true, but it would be ridiculous. It would be trivial. It's because a day is so different from a thousand years that the verse has power. It's telling us that God is beyond time. It's not giving you permission to change the word day everywhere you see it in Scripture to a thousand years. And even if it were, that would make earth 12,000 years old instead of 6,000, right? It wouldn't get you anywhere close to the millions of years that people think they need to add to the Bible. The Hebrew word for day is yom, and it's used over 2,000 times in the Old Testament of the Bible in singular and plural form. Plural form is yomim. I find the only place people question, what does day mean, is in Genesis. Isn't that true? You don't have any confusion about other days that are mentioned in Scripture, right? Like, how long was Jonah really in the belly of the whale? Now, were those ordinary days? Oh, no, I think they might have been thousands of years. He might have been in there a long time, right? People don't say that. No wonder he repented. He was in there 3,000 years. We understand that. Of course, those are ordinary days. We get that. But Dr. Lyle, the Hebrew word for day can mean a period of time, longer than 24 hours. And that's true primarily in the poetic literature uh, and when combined with like a prepositional phrase, like the day of the Lord. But that's rare. The, the overwhelming main usage of Yom is day. That's what it means time and time again. Even our English word for day can take on non-literal meanings. I understand that. You might say back in my father's day. Yeah, that would be a period of time longer than 24 hours. I get that. Wouldn't be millions of years, but it'd be longer than 24 hours. Back in my father's day, it took three days to drive across Texas during the day. So you got the word day used three times, and I'll bet you didn't have any trouble understanding it because you used context. You used the surrounding words to constrain the meaning. And that's how language works. Most words have more than one meaning, and you use the surrounding words to figure out which meaning is in play in that particular instance. Back in my father's day, yeah, that would be a period of time longer than 24 hours. It took uh, three days. Now, those would be ordinary days because it's got a number with it, right? To drive across Texas during the day, that would be the light portion of an ordinary day. It's very clear. It's the same in Hebrew or any language. You use the surrounding words, context, to understand which meaning is in play. So let's take a look at the Hebrew word for day, yom, outside of Genesis 1, where we all agree what it means, to see how context constrains the meaning. For example, when the word day is used in context with a number, like the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day is in an ordered list, it always is translated day every, every single time. Very clearly means an ordinary day in all the historic narrative literature of the Bible. If you had evening and morning together, even if the word day isn't there, what's an evening plus a morning? It's a day, right? And that's very clear. It happens 38 times outside of Genesis 1. We all get that. If there's evening with day, if, if you see evening with day, then you know it's an ordinary day. Or if, or if I said there was morning that day, you know I'm talking about an ordinary day. Evening or morning with day happens 23 times each outside Genesis 1. We all agree it's an ordinary day. If, if I said there was day, then there was night. 
Then you've got uh, night contrasted with day. You know I'm talking about an ordinary day. That's pretty clear. Happens over 50 times outside Genesis 1. We, we get that. We understand it's an ordinary day. So these are contextual clues that indicate we're dealing with an ordinary day and not the, the figurative usage, like in, you know, in the day of the Lord. So let's apply these contextual clues to Genesis 1 and see if we can figure out what God meant when he said he made in six days. Genesis 1 verse 5, and God called the light day. So there he's defining it for you. Day is when it's light out. Now that would be an ordinary day, right? And the darkness he called night. Yet night associated with day, got to be an ordinary day. And the evening associated with day, got to be an ordinary day. And the morning associated with day, got to be an ordinary day. You got evening and morning together, that constitutes an ordinary day. And you got a number with it. Got to be an ordinary day. You're sensing a, like maybe God's trying to tell you something there? Like maybe that's an ordinary day, really? Well, what about the other days of creation? Let's have a look here. Evening, morning, number, day. 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 It's pretty clear, isn't it? It's kind of like God saying, see, they're ordinary days, and in case you still don't get it, they're ordinary days. And in case you're a little thick, they're ordinary days. And in case you're really intellectually challenged, they're ordinary days. Yeah. <laughs> People say, oh, but Dr. Lyle, the sun wasn't made until the fourth day. So how can they be ordinary days? Well, i got news for you. The sun doesn't have much to do with the length of the day. It's primarily the rotation of the earth that determines the length of the day. As long as you have a light source and a rotating planet, you're going to have day and night. Did we have a light source on the first day? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Yeah, we had light source on the first day. Did we have a rotating planet? Sure, we had evening and morning. It was already rotating. No problem. You can have, you can have day and night the first three days, and then God replaced that temporary light source with the sun on day four, uh, for whatever reason, perhaps so the Hebrews would be less inclined to worship the sun as deity as many other cultures did, and even some of the Hebrews fell into that as well. But So God displaced it until the fourth day. The sun is not the primary source of life. God's the primary source of life. Where do we get the idea of seven days in a week? You ever thought about that? It goes back to creation. It's because that's how long it took for God to create and rest. All the other units of time have a basis in astronomy. A day is a rotation of Earth on its axis. A month is the amount of time it takes the moon to go through its phases. That's where we get the word month, it's say month. And a year is the amount of time it takes the Earth to go around the sun. But where do we get the idea of seven days in a week? Not from astronomy, it's from history. That's how long it took for God to create and rest. And he explicitly tells us that in Exodus 20.11. Exodus chapter 20, you'll remember that's the chapter that has the Ten Commandments. And verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. He goes on and explains, in six days you'll do your labor, the seventh is the Lord's. Verse 11 is the explanation for why. Why do we have a seven-day week? Because that's how long it took for God to create and rest. And he uses the same word for day in the plural form, yamim, which, is never, which never means a long period of time, by the way. Isn't that interesting? So the reason we have a seven-day week is because that's what God did. So if God really created over hundreds of millions of years, we'd have an awfully long work week. You'd never make it to the weekend. Back in Martin Luther's time, there were some people who were trying to squeeze the days of creation into one day and saying God actually created an instant. I want to show you how Martin Luther responds to this. He says, how long did the work of creation take? When Moses writes that God created heaven and earth and whatever is in them in six days, then let this period continue to have been six days and do not venture to devise any comment according to which six days were one day. I love this last part. He says, but if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. <laughs> that may be my favorite Martin Luther quote. 
What about the science? You know, there's a lot of science that confirms that the world's thousands of years old. I actually have other presentations I do on that very topic. Let me just whet your appetite. You heard of carbon dating? Did you know that a lot of people have the misimpression carbon dating gives millions of years? It never does. Now, there are other methods that secular scientists use to try and convince people that the world's millions of years old. But carbon dating is our friend. And it gives ages that are very consistent with the biblical time scale. It's based on the decay of C14. C14 is an unstable variety of carbon. There's a small fraction of it in, uh, in the atmosphere and in the food you eat and so on. And uh, so you're all a little bit unstable. Well, you knew that because you're decaying a little bit. Um, anyway, C14, my point is C14 has a short half-life and it cannot last millions of years. And yet we find it in diamonds that evolutionists believe to be one to two billion years old. If they were even one million years old, you shouldn't have a single atom of C14 in them. And yet we find C14 in everything. We find it in fossils. We've taken dinosaur fossils and carbon dated them. You get thousands of years. Isn't that interesting? You don't get millions of years. We have yet to find an exception to that, by the way. But here's my, here's my question, though. Does it really matter? Because most Christians think, well, the time scale doesn't really matter. What's important is you trust in Jesus. Of course, that's the most important thing. And some Christians say, well, you know, as long as you believe in creation, that's important. Of course, that's important, too. But they say the time scale doesn't matter. You see, historically what happened is the secularists came along and used the time scale, their belief in the millions of years, to say the Bible's not true. And a lot of the theologians, not all of them, but a lot of them compromised and said, well, maybe we can allow for that in Scripture. After all, it's not a salvation issue. And I think they had good intentions, but I don't think that's the right thing to do. Uh, and I'll, I'll agree it's not a salvation issue in the sense that the Bible doesn't require you to believe in six days to be saved. I understand that. We're saved by God's grace, received through faith in Christ, and we don't want to add to that. At the same time, it is an important issue. It's kind of like gravity. Gravity is not a salvation issue, right? But it's important. Wouldn't you agree? You can not believe in gravity and still go to heaven. You'll probably get there a lot quicker that way. It's, it's the same way with the, with the days of, of creation, the time scale of creation. First of all, it's important because it's what God's Word teaches. The Bible's very clear about that. I understand there are some sections of God's Word that are difficult. The Bible itself says that. There are some portions that are hard to understand. I get that. Genesis is not one of them. It's very easy to understand. And when, when the Bible clearly teaches something, we need to stand on that. And the Bible clearly teaches God created in six days. In fact, the section of Scripture where it says, in six days the Lord made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, again, that's part of the Ten Commandments. That was written in stone by the finger of God. You better take that seriously. Of course, all Scriptures, God breathed. We need to take it all seriously, of course. There's another reason, though, why you don't want to add in the millions of years, and that concerns these fossils that we find all over the earth. And we do find fossils all over the earth. Now, a fossil is a dead thing. And if you find... A fossil, and, you, and if you think that fossils are hundreds of millions of years old, you've got a theological problem because you got death before human beings existed and therefore death before Adam sinned. But doesn't the Bible say that death came into the world as a result of Adam's sin? By man came death? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? But if you believe in millions of years, even if you don't believe in evolution, you just say, but I think maybe God created progressively over hundreds of millions of years and the fossils are millions of years old, and that means you got death before Adam sinned. It's by death came man, but the Bible says by man came death. Those are two logically contrary positions. They cannot both be true. Here you have the Garden of Eden. Eve saying, God's creation is perfect. Adam's saying, yeah, God says it's very good, and he sure is right. It really is very good. But here's the problem. If you, if you believe the fossils are millions of years old, and God had already been creating and killing organisms for hundreds of millions of years... Then that means, and then finally gets around to creating the Garden of Eden. 
and calls it very good, that means you've got the Garden of Eden sitting on top of millions of years of death and suffering, disease and bloodshed. And we find evidence of violence in the, in, in the fossil record. We find evidence of animals killing other animals. We find evidence of disease. Did you know there's a whole field of study called paleopathology that studies disease in fossils, arthritis, cancer? Was that already in the world when God called it very good? If you believe in millions of years, you have to accept that death and suffering are part of God's very good original world. In which case, when your friend is sick, why do you bother praying for him? It's very good that they're sick. That's part of God's original plan, right? No, these things, these fossils came into the world after Adam sinned. And most of them probably during the worldwide flood. That would deposit a lot of fossils very quickly, kill organisms and bury them quickly. And as as a result, ultimately, of mankind's sin is why organisms have to suffer and die. It's not God's fault, it's our fault. Now, some people have said, well, I think it's just human death that entered when Adam sinned. But I don't think you can defend that scripturally, because when Adam sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned and God confronted them, he then provided skins of clothing. Those would be animal skins, which means God killed an animal or animals to provide skins of clothing for Adam and Eve, maybe as a, a picture of the Messiah to come. I always thought it was a lamb that God killed. The Bible doesn't actually say, but it would make sense um, as, as a sim- symbol for the lamb to come who would actually uh, deal with the problem of sin. And some people have said, but I got you here, Dr. Lau, because they had to be eating. They, we know they were eating plants, so you have to at least have plant death, right? And I'll give you that. But you see, plants biblically are not alive. Isn't that interesting? The Bible uses a special word, nefesh, nefesh kaya, or nefesh kaya, which means living creature. It applies to human beings. It applies to animals. It's never used to plants. Plants, under, under the biblical definition of life, are not considered alive. And therefore, they can't literally die because they're not literally alive to begin with. Now, you know, you can talk about a dead plant. You can talk about a dead battery, but that doesn't mean it was ever really alive. We understand that. It's not alive in the same way that, that we are. It just means it's not functioning the way it once did. Uh, and plants are designed for that. So there was a plant cycle before Adam sinned, and that's not a problem. We, we know that. We know plants are in a different category, right? You come across a so-called dead tree. Well, that's nice. I think I'll sit on that for a little while, maybe take a picture of it, put it on my mantle. That's great. But if you come across a dead animal, you say, that's nice. I think I'm going to sit on that for a little while, take a picture of it, put it on the mantle. <laughs> It's different, isn't it? Animal death is an intrusion into a world that was once perfect, but the plant cycle would have existed already and and presumably will in the eternal state as well. Well, I could talk about this for millions of years, but we need to wrap things up. They gave gave me till 1.30, but is that a literal 1.30 or is it figurative? Let's wrap it up with this cross series. The church is preaching a message. Come to Jesus. Come to the cross and be saved. And that's the right message, of course. We want to be teaching that. But there's been an attack in the form of millions of years. That's one of the attacks on Scripture. And that impacts. And you know what we're inclined to think? Hey, that's a miss. I didn't hit the cross. That's not a salvation issue. We don't have to worry about that. What we fail to recognize is that millions of years is an attack on Genesis. And Genesis is foundational to the cross, the gospel message. It really is. Satan's crafty. If he were aiming at the cross and saying, Jesus Christ never resurrected, we understand that. That's blasphemy. That's wrong. We get that. You can get books to defend the resurrection. But then Satan names that are foundation. And we think, ah, just a side issue, not important. It's a foundational issue. Is God's word true from the beginning? That's what I want to know. And so... Then what happens is these different attacks come. Historically, these happened. 
naturalism, evolution, eight millions of years, no global flood. And they impact. And again, our thinking is, hey, it's a miss. Didn't hit the cross. Really, it was a direct hit. Direct hit. Right at the foundation of the Bible. The very first book, the very first verses of Scripture under attack. And we think it's a miss. Hmm. And what is the result of all these different attacks on Genesis? The result is unbelief. Right? Just as Jesus put it. If I've told you of earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Then these different symptoms happen. Newsflash, prayer outlawed in schools. And we say, hey, trust in Jesus, which we should do, but my point is we're not dealing with the problem. Newsflash, creation outlawed in schools. We say, hey, Jesus is going to return. Yes, he is, but in the meantime, he's told us to do some things, like make disciples of all nations, be ready to give an answer, and so on. Newsflash, the Bible's outlawed in schools. We say, let's get the Bible back into schools. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm all for doing what we can politically. But, folks, the nation will not be won back politically. If it's going to be won back, it'll be through the proclamation of the gospel, which means we need to, de- to defend God's word from the very beginning. It's only God's word that has the power to save us. Ten commandments outlawed in schools. Hmm. Well, let's concentrate on worship. The church can be doing a lot of good things. But if we're not doing what God has commanded us to do and being ready to give an answer to everyone who asks a reason of hope that's in us with gentleness and respect, then we're not doing what he's commanded us to do. And as a result, the gospel has become obscured by unbelief in our culture today. This is the present situation. This is where things are at now in the minds of people. Now, we know God wins in the end. I get that. But uh, there are going to be a lot of casualties, a lot of people that could have known Christ as Savior that haven't. And we haven't done our job as Christians, for the most part. Well, that's why organizations like ICR exist. We want to come alongside the church. Of course, all of us at ICR are members of our, our local church body. But as a ministry, we come alongside the church. We want to repair the damage that's been done, so you can trust in Genesis. The science, when you understand it, confirms it. Of course, we specialize in the scientific aspects, showing how science confirms biblical creation. And then when these different attacks come, we want to warn you these are attacks on the Christian faith, and then we show you how to refute all these arguments using our resources, which we, we brought some today. You can check those out. And then, uh, of course, ultimately, we'd like to be in the background. We'd like everyone in the church to recognize that these are attacks on the Christian faith and, and be able to defend these ably, logically, be able to give a good reason uh, that we can, and show people that you can trust in the Bible from the very beginning. And then we can say, come to Jesus, come to the cross and be saved. And people say, I get it now, I understand. It's because of what Adam did that I need a Savior. That's what it comes down to. And I can trust the Bible from the very first verse. That's what we're all about at the Institute for Creation Research. Now, we, again, we have a lot of resources that I encourage you to get. You can get this presentation on DVD called Your Origins Matter. And we have these out there in the, um, the overflow room. So please check that out before you head out uh, for today. Your Origins Matter. The book that goes along with this presentation, Understanding Genesis, that's going to help you to... Uh, uh, refute well-meaning people who say, well, Genesis doesn't really mean what it, what it says. That's your interpretation. Mine's different. Well, you can show them that there's only one correct interpretation, and you can demonstrate that. That's, this book's going to show you how to do that. Creation Basics and Beyond, written by all of our staff scientists, concerning every issue you can think of dealing with creation, like um, where did the water for the flood come from and where did it go? And was there an ice age? And if so, how did that happen and, and when? And how did God get the light from those stars to the earth in the biblical time scale? And how did Noah get all the animals on the ark, really? 
Uh, all those are answered in that book, along with other ones you probably haven't thought to ask. You read that book, you'll be able to answer 90% of the questions that critics ask about creation. We have a student version as well called Guide to Creation Basics. You get this one, you, and then you get the, the student version to your, your, your youngsters. Uh, ultimate proof of creation. If you want a bulletproof argument for biblical creation, this is it. This is, this is a very powerful resource that I would encourage every... I, I would hope that every student would read this, especially before they go off to college, because it's going to get you thinking straight in terms of how to uh, spot errors in reasoning and things like that, and how, how to give a, a, an irrefutable argument for biblical creation. Very powerful resource. Uh, discerning truth, how to spot logical fallacies in arguments that evolutionists often make. We have DVDs as well. You say, I don't have time to read. Well, we got DVDs, right? And we have Created Cosmos, takes you on a tour of the universe. One of our best ones is called Astronomy Reveals Creation. I don't have a slide for it, but it's, it's the one with the purple cover. And it's going to show you how the universe uh, speaks to the issue of biblical creation. And the universe really is thousands of years old. There's evidence for that, that the earth is special. And this one also covers how did God get the light from the galaxies to the earth within the biblical time scale. It's all covered in Astronomy Reveals Creation, that DVD. Uh, secret code of creation. We might have a few of these left. God has built an aspect of design into an area of creation you probably never even thought about. And it's absolutely irrefutable. It's an, it's an interesting presentation. Uh, this is a fantastic resource here. Dinosaurs, Marvels of God's Design. If you wonder how dinosaurs fit into the biblical time scale, a lot of people do. Uh, this is written by a friend of mine, Tim Clary. He's one of our scientists at ICR. And he's a dinosaur expert. He's taught college-level classes on dinosaurs. Uh, he'll give it to you from a Christian perspective. He'll show you how they, they make sense in light of what the Bible teaches. And yes, the Bible does mention dinosaurs. It doesn't use that term because it's a modern term, but it uses another term. And uh, you'll, you'll find that very interesting, I think. Uh, we have resources on astronomy. We have Taking Back Astronomy, which is going to show you how the universe declares God's glory. Not a big bang or billions of years. And that's a fun resource as well. Acts and Facts magazine. Now, this one's free. We like to come, we'd like to give you free stuff as well. So please, if you're not already subscribing to Acts and Facts, this is a, a monthly, full-color, beautiful magazine, family-oriented. It'll have maybe one technical article in it, but a lot of others that are more layman level. And uh, it's, just, it's just a great resource that I'd encourage you to get. Now, how many of you are already getting Acts and Facts magazine? And, uh, okay, okay, we got one or two righteous in this, in this group. The rest of you need to repent of that sin and sign up from the, uh, over in our overflow room. And pl- please do sign up. We, wanna, we just want to bless you. I had a lady ask uh, in the previous service, you know, she says, I didn't buy anything. Is it okay if I sign up? Of course. We, we want to bless you. This is totally free. And uh, not too many things free in this world, right? Just uh, salvation and acts and facts. <laughs> Check us out on the web as well at icr.org. And let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for the salvation that you have so generously provided for us, that we, rebelling and rebelling against you, spitting in your face, that you should turn our hearts around to love you and that you would save us from our sins, Lord. I pray that uh, people were encouraged today, that this message sinks in, that if they're able to get the resources, that they are able to do that and uh, pass this information on to skeptical friends so that people may be saved. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.